Yes, this is the podcast of Tressler Mennonite Church. You can come here each week to hear a replay of the sermon from our Sunday morning service. Anyone is certainly welcome, but we started this podcast for those from our own congregation who had to miss our service, but who wanted to hear each sermon in this series. This particular sermon was from February 26, 2023, and the text was Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 3. When I was in college, getting to be many years ago, I was part of a campus ministry there that was sponsored by the local Christian Missionary Alliance Church. And that congregation hired a campus pastor who worked on the campus with the group that I was part of. We met twice a week. His name was Pete. We called him Pastor Pete often. And during the time that I was there, our group was a little bit smaller than the normal and smaller than he would have liked it. And it seemed to have a little bit more trouble attracting new members and reaching new students for Jesus. And I I was part of a meeting in which Pete gathered a bunch of the student leaders together and he was sharing that he was going to try to approach something a little bit differently. He wanted to start and go over the very basics of the Christian faith when he was teaching and preaching with that group because he said he just felt like we weren't going to attract new people, we weren't going to grow until we could really become mature and we couldn't become mature until we fully understood the basics. Now is over 20 years ago now, but But his words kind of came back into my mind when I was reading and preparing for this passage because he felt a little bit discouraged. He was a little bit disappointed with the numbers and the the growth, and he felt that as a church group, we needed to start at the basics and that the people there just weren't understanding it. And I feel like maybe the author of Hebrews is in a little bit kind of similar place. Um, If you were here last week, you will remember that... The author of this letter that we call Hebrews was talking about Jesus as our high priest. He's getting ready to dive into what that means, and he's going to have a lot of really deep and interesting and fascinating things. But our passage for today starts a little parentheses of sorts in which he stops and he interrupts himself because for a minute here, he is lamenting. He says, there is so much, so much more that we would like to say about this. But it's difficult to explain since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. I don't know. It's, it's a bold statement for somebody to make when he's writing to a congregation. But he's really excited about his topic of Jesus as high priest. He believes it's going to be useful. He wants to dive in. And he's just not sure they are ready for it. So he continues. He said, you have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. So I think it's, it's probably important to, to just stop here for a minute and say it's not wrong for babies to eat milk, and it's not wrong for new Christians to be taught the very basics of the faith. But the point is, you want your kids to grow up. They want to be able to eat a whole meal at some point, and Christians should grow up as well. And that's the concern that the author has. Not that they had to start at the beginning, 
but that they haven't moved beyond there. I was reading a commentary by N.T. Wright, and he gave an illustration that I thought might help us understand this. At least I liked it. He said, it's really good to teach kindergarten kids the ABCs and to sing the ABC song with them. It's a really important way of helping people learn their alphabets. But we kind of get to the hope, at least, that they get to the point where they're starting to learn to read and they're starting to learn to write and to communicate through this language and we don't need to be singing the ABC song again. If you walk into a high school class and the teacher is still singing the alphabet song because they just haven't gotten it yet, then you know there's a problem. So the author of Hebrews feels that his readers are, using this metaphor, still needing to be taught the ABCs because they haven't gotten it yet. And they definitely haven't learned to read and to write. Or, of course, his metaphor is they're still drinking milk. They're not able to sit down at the table and enjoy the real food. He says, for someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. And now in the next two verses, the beginning of chapter 6, the author goes through and he reviews some of the basics of the faith. He doesn't talk about them very much, but he kind of lists these basics of the faith. These are things that we as Christians ought to know very, very well. The kind of things that you don't really need to talk to anyone later, but only because they know them inside and out. So let me read those two verses. So let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds and placing our faith in God. You don't need further instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. So there are six things here that are mentioned. Repentance, faith, baptism, laying on of hands, resurrection, and judgment. And I, I decided I'm going to use this morning to kind of review these six things because the author of Hebrews indicates that these are things that Christians ought to know, very basic things. Some of you in this room are going to know everything that I say, probably, but others of you may be newer believers and you're going to have a chance to review some of this and maybe even hear it for the very first time for some of you. And also, perhaps Pete was right, that every once in a while, pastors need to go through, again, all of the basics of the faith so that they can go forward further and deeper later. And since we're, we're in this passage right now, it seemed like a good chance to review the basics of the Christian faith, and I'm going to use these six things that the author brings out as a way to do this. So first thing he mentions, repentance. Now, when I looked it up in the dictionary, the English dictionary, I got two different, two different definitions for repent, and the one was to feel regret about something somebody did. The other is to turn away from sin and to dedicate oneself to the amendment of one's life. A second definition seemed just slightly convoluted, and yet that's what we're talking about when we talk about repentance in the church. Within a Christian setting, repentance is not just feeling bad about something, oh, I shouldn't have done that, now I feel terrible. Repentance involves turning away from something. I went to high school, well, 10th through 12th grade at Lancaster Mennonite High School, and there was a teacher there named Mr. Dietz, who was the Bible teacher, and he always gave a visual demonstration of this in class. Now, he was old enough by that time that he did this demonstration more than necessary, and I don't know if he remembered how often he had done it, 
On the other hand, maybe he just wanted it to be in our minds for sure. But he would start at one side of the classroom and he would be walking along and he would be talking about this topic of repentance and he'd be kind of introducing it. And then he'd yell very loudly, repent! And he'd turn around and he'd walk across the classroom in the other direction as he continued his lesson. And his point was that repentance in a Christian context must revolve a change in direction. So repentance isn't just saying, I shouldn't have done that. Repentance involves turning away from something and going in a new direction. So repentance is one of the very basic elements of of Christianity, of the Christian faith. In Matthew 4, verse 17, we can read that repentance was one of the first things Jesus preached when he started his ministry. He said, from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. And when Peter preached at Pentecost, maybe you could say the first Christian sermon ever preached, he said, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So repentance is fundamental to our Christian faith. All Christians must reach a point in life in which they say, I have sinned, I've been going in the wrong direction, I need to make a change and go in a new direction, I need to follow Jesus. So so for some people it's going to happen when they're very, very young, for others much older. For some it's going to be a very visible kind of thing, especially people who have been very visibly going in the other direction, and for some it's much less visible. For some, it's a very defined moment in time. They can point to the minute when they repented. And for others, God is at work in their heart, and it's a much more gradual turnaround. But on some basic level, every Christian needs to be able to say, I turn away from sin, and I turn from God, turn toward God. But I get that right. Turn away from sin and turn toward God. So that's what repentance is. But this is probably a really good transition to our next next word. If you um, look up faith in the Bible, you get a couple of different ideas here. And I mean, in a dictionary about what we're trying to read about in the Bible, you get a couple of different definitions of faith. And I think a lot of them have some element, but the one that seems to be what we talk about when we're talking about the basics elements of Christianity is placing our faith in God means that we are, let me find the wording here, we are, eh, lost my notes, belief and trust in God is the way it was worded in the one dictionary definition. So we sometimes use faith as sort of a shorthand for our religious beliefs. That's not a bad way to use it. You know, because of my faith, I believe I need to love other people or We'll use it in other ways, sort of just a generic trust in something. But in this particular context, placing our faith in God, there's an element of belief in him, but also trust in him. And that's what we're talking about. And actually, this is the flip side of repentance. So if repentance is this idea that we were going in one direction and we turn around, this faith in God describes where we're turning toward. So... Faith is the other side of repentance. Now, our third word is baptism. And you'll notice that in the New Living Translation, it says baptisms, plural. And the context is you don't need further instruction about baptisms. 
The New American Standard, when I looked it up, it said washings. But then there was a note that said, well, maybe it should be translated as baptisms. The NIV had cleansing rites when I looked that up. So, but then it also had the footnote, possibly baptisms. The phrasing apparently in the Greek is a little strange, but the commentaries that I read all pointed us toward baptism. And it seems like what the author may have been referring to is that baptism was, was a broader part of their situation. So John prepared the way for Jesus by baptizing people. This was a baptism associated with repentance. So John's baptism was associated with the beginning repentance as they were beginning to turn away from sin toward God. The church continued this when Jesus gave instructions that they should continue to baptize people, and it's still associated with repentance, but now it is also associated with faith in Jesus. So our first two words, repent and faith, meant that we turned away from sin, turned toward Jesus. Baptism then continues this because it is that public demonstration that somebody has indeed turned toward Jesus. I know it's an imperfect metaphor, but it it seemed like it might be helpful. When a couple wants to get married, we have a public ceremony, and part of what they do at that ceremony is to publicly say before their friends, their family, or their church that they are turning away from everybody else and turning toward that one person. And baptism is a little bit like that. It's a public demonstration. I turn away from that previous direction, and I turn toward Jesus. But there's a little more to that than baptism. In baptism, there's an element of symbolic meaning as well. And perhaps that's caught in the reason that some translations use washings or cleansing rites. We wash something with water to make it clean. And I want to be very clear baptism does not cleanse us, but there's an element of symbolism to the baptism, which is which is there. So we have been cleansed through the work of Jesus. And so the baptism is a public statement that we are turning towards him. It is also a symbolic action that shows that we have been cleansed by him. So here at Tressler, we baptize either by immersing people in water and then raising them back up again, or we pour a very, very small, it's not an ice bucket challenge, a small amount of water on them. And some churches have real strong opinions about which one we must not because we have done it both ways. The next is the laying on of hands, and it actually continues this same thought here. Commentaries kind of go in two directions. I I felt like they weren't incompatible directions and probably were both on the minds of the author. The one is that this is very much coupled with baptism because apparently the early churches would often baptize somebody and then they would lay their hands on them and sort of welcome them into the church. The other is that there's reference in Scripture to the idea that the laying on of hands is associated with calling somebody into leadership. If you were here at Trestler when we went through 1 Timothy, not that long ago, you will perhaps remember that we encountered a verse like this. Paul writes, Do not neglect the spiritual gift you received through the prophecy spoken over you when the elders of the church laid their hands on you, and this seems to be associated with his call into leadership. So, the laying on of hands captures this community aspect of following Jesus. We don't, we can't, we shouldn't even try to follow Jesus on our own. Community is fundamental to following Jesus. And you're going to encounter people out there who say, Oh, I can follow Jesus all by myself. 
I don't need to go to church in order to pray. I don't need to go to church to worship God. And to a certain extent, that's true. Our relationship with God is one-on-one. But the main teaching and the main example that we find in Scripture is that worshiping Jesus, being a follower of Jesus, is part of a community. So we turn away from sin, we turn toward God, we publicly proclaim this through baptism, and then we are welcomed into this new family, and this has traditionally been done by laying on of hands. Maybe today we'll sometimes shake hands or we'll give people a hug, but there's that idea of welcoming them into the group. So the first four words that we've gone through so far, they refer to becoming a Christian and then joining and entering the church. We turn away from sin, that's repentance. We turn toward God, we place our faith in God. We publicly proclaim this through baptism, and then we are welcomed into the new family, the church, through the laying on of hands. And the last two words refer to some fundamental aspects of Christianity that are pointing toward the future. And the first word there is resurrection. Scripture teaches us that someday Jesus will return. And when he does, those who belong to him who have died will rise. So there's a passage in 1 Thessalonians. You may have heard it at funerals over the years. It's read sometimes at graveside services or other times in the service. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then, together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. So Jesus is coming back someday, and when he comes... Those who have died will rise. Bodily resurrection. This can kind of sound strange. In our culture, our broader culture, we don't tend to talk about it like this. And sometimes then in the church, we don't talk about it either. So often in our culture, we'll talk about the idea that we're going to get rid of these broken and frail bodies. We're going to put them in the ground and get rid of them, put them behind us. And then our spirits are going to soar away to heaven. But... Scripture says our bodies will rise. Jesus' tomb was empty, and that seems to be incredibly important to the New Testament writers. He didn't leave his physical earthly body in that tomb while his spirit ascended to heaven. He didn't even leave that old body in the tomb while God gave him a new one. That old one was gone because it was resurrected. It was changed very profoundly changed. You can see that when you read scripture, but it was the same body with the same scars to prove it. Complicated. I don't pretend to understand. Paul writes that Jesus' experience was a sort of foretaste of what those who follow him will all experience. So I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is a great, great chapter in general to read. I'm going to read just a few verses here. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn Christ, the first fruits. And then, when he comes, those who belong to him. So we will rise. Those bodies will be raised. Now, 
How does this work on a really practical front? Don't bodies rot? Sometimes they're destroyed by fire or explosions or eaten by alligators. And I'm not trying to be at all morbid, but people ask these questions. They are questions that actually do get asked because they're very real questions. And so I encourage you, go back and read all of chapter 15. Paul addresses some of these questions in some ways. For me, very short and simple is to say, I think the God who spoke the universe into being can figure out how to raise a body that has decayed or burned. The point is, he says, he will raise them. Transformed, very much, but nonetheless still resurrected. And just as maybe a note, these bodies aren't new bodies so that we can leave and go somewhere else. Heaven is going to descend, and then there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and everything will be changed and transformed just like our bodies. In Revelation 21, we see God's city, the new Jerusalem, descending out of heaven, and in the new heaven and the new earth, God will live with his people once again, and that's a vision that I find really, really exciting. Our last word is judgment, or eternal judgment, as it's phrased. And so since I just mentioned the book of Revelation, there we get another picture of this. And and it's easy if I say our last word is eternal judgment. A lot of people will say, oh, yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. God is going to judge all those evil people, and he's going to send them to hell. But in the if we're talking about the very basics of Christianity, we should be clear, judgment isn't just for those people. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells a story, the parable of the sheep and the goats, in which he talks about being the judge, and those who honored him are blessed, those who rejected him are indeed sent away. But the point is, judgment happened to all. In Revelation 20, we get a glimpse of another judgment scene, and in this scene as well, nobody escapes judgment. Everybody stands before the throne and faces judgment. But in that revelation scene, it should be noted that while everybody is judged, those who receive life do not receive it because they were good enough. I don't think anybody fits into that category. Those who receive life receive it because their names are written in the book of life, and it's clarified that that book belongs to Jesus. You can go read the last couple chapters of Revelation to get this picture here. The point is, in the, in the context of very basics of Christianity, don't think of judgment as just for those people out there, those bad people. Judgment is the idea that everybody will, in the end, stand before God and answer to him. But the picture we're given is that Jesus stands there with God, and when one of his own comes forward, he leans over and he says, that one is mine. And Jesus knows us all by name. So I kind of have a picture of Jesus at that final judgment, and I walk forward, and he leans over, and he says, that's Jeremy. He repented, and he placed his faith in me. His sins have been washed away, and his baptism was a public symbol of that. I raised him from the grave, and he will now be with me forever, because his name is written in my book. So I have confidence in the future, but not, not because I have behaved good enough, but because of what Jesus has done for me. But notice there is a final judgment and nobody will escape it. Now, other preachers, other teachers, I'm sure, have other lists of the basics of the faith. They don't necessarily all use these exact six. 
Several commentators stress that this, these six things are something that the author of Hebrews wrote to a specific church in a specific situation. So if you were going to try to write a comprehensive book on the basics of the faith, you might want to include some other passages and some other ideas. But these six things are in Hebrews, which is where we're at, and they do capture the basics of the Christian faith. They seemed like a good, a good way to take an opportunity to talk about this once again, here at Tressler. So maybe, maybe you already know everything that I have said this morning, or maybe some of you have learned something for the first time. If you've learned something new and you have further questions, please ask. But, but notice, the main point of all of this, whether you're learning it for the first time, or whether you've heard a hundred sermons on this, or whether you have it so well that you should be up here preaching instead, these things are where it starts. It's not supposed to be where it ends. And we get to verse 6, chapter 6, verse 3. And so, God willing, we will move forward to further understanding. So come back next week as we move in. Interesting stuff. We're moving away from the basics on into more as the author of Hebrews continues his letter. Once again, it seems you've wasted about 25 perfectly good minutes listening to the Tressler Mennonite Sermon from February 26th, 2023, and the passage was Hebrews 5.11 through 6.3. Take care. Thank you.